Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have three students with me here. Two that uh, we've uh, worked with before. One we've done a podcast with, uh, two third year students, one fourth year medical student. And let's do some introductions. How about if we start with you, Danny? My name's Danny Hansen. I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And Lance? Yeah, I'm Lance Earnshaw. I'm a third year student here at Rocky Vista as well. Now, Lance, we did one other podcast together. That's and, correct. Uh, I think it was your father that was uh, nearly seven, eight months ago talking about the response that the Utah State Hospital has had to the pandemic. I think it'd be interesting to get him back. Maybe you can work on that for me. Oh, absolutely. He, <laughs> he provides good insight into how things are running here at the hospital, so I'd definitely do that for you. That'd be great. And Dylan, you were here with me when we were first starting to try and develop podcasts. Correct. I think... Um, the process was a little more challenging at the time, and I don't think we ever actually got the podcast done that you worked on. No. What was the topic of that podcast? Do you recall? I was going to dive into a little bit about dr drug intoxications and the presentations and treatments of different drug intoxication, specifically in the emergency department. Um, I'm a, a fourth-year medical student interested in pursuing emergency medicine, so at the time I wanted to, to choose a topic that was geared more towards emergency medicine and, and things that I might be encountering in my career. Now, we ended up doing that uh, topic. I think Cam was mm -hmm. uh, the person we did that with, and uh, I think the feedback on that presentation has been, uh, could you guys talk a little bit less about the drug names and the molecular yeah. structure of those? And so if you decide at some point in the future that you want to come back and help me redo those, we'll get Cam back, and, and maybe we can get a, an even better podcast that tackles that. Tell me a little bit about the podcast today. Tell me how it came about and, and what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so today uh, the topic we've decided to tackle is the treatment of an acutely agitated or perhaps violent and aggressive patient in the emergency department. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a fourth-year medical student who's planning on pursuing emergency medicine, and as I've been doing some of my sub-eyes um, in different emergency departments across the country, um, I began to notice that the, the treatment of agitation within the emergency department tends to vary uh, from hospital to hospital and even physician physician to physician within that same hospital system. And so I, I was curious as to why, and I never really got a good response other than that was what people were comfortable with. Um, and so I wanted to dive further into that and see what the guidelines truly were for treatment of agitation and, and perhaps why there aren't better guidelines or more um, defined guidelines in place for the treatment of agitation. What a great question. I think we ran across a couple of explanations for that. Before yeah. we jump into that, uh, one of the things that we really like to do in this setting is try and have some high-yield uh, facts or concepts right at the very beginning. And, and in this case, where we're, I think, going to tackle the pharmacology of the agitated patient in the emergency room, mm -hmm. the questions that you guys look at on UBank or QBank and UWorld don't seem to focus on treatment with pharmacology as much. So I think it does make a lot of sense to at least introduce uh, like a scenario or a case report example of some sort that we've sort of made up here that gives us the setting to build around. Uh, let's see, Lance, I think you had that, right? Yes, sir. So we have a 36-year-old male who comes into the emergency department in police custody. Uh, as he is uh, triaged by staff, he becomes increasingly agitated and eventually becomes belligerent. When attempts are made to restrain him, he becomes violent towards staff and injures a nurse. Uh, what are your next steps in management and uh, what would you do next? All right, so 
big things here. And uh, something I didn't know about was how often healthcare providers are assaulted and injured. I had a sense of it, but the mm -hmm. numbers that are provided um, in some of these articles are, are surprising. Did anybody have those off the top of their head? Yeah, I think it varies depending on which study or survey you're looking at. Um, but I've seen values ranging anywhere from 60 to up, upwards of 80% of healthcare workers in the emergency setting have described some type of physical assault or attack um, on them while at work. Pretty big numbers. Yeah. Now you, you asked a question earlier, why isn't there a more uh, unified consensus in treatment? And I think Cam and I came across guidelines from, I want to say the American Association of Emergency Medicine but that might not be right. Uh, it might be emergency department mm -hmm. physicians or something along those lines. And I think some of the evidence that we came about, uh, some of the papers that we came across were by an entirely different group, right. which was the American Association of Emergency Psychiatry. Right? And they mentioned a couple of things that make it very difficult to have good data in this setting. Do you want to speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, um, I think one of the main issues is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution for agitation because agitation can present in so many different ways. Um, there's different levels to agitation. Um, there's different things that cause agitation. You know, whether someone's presenting agitated and acutely with acute psychosis because of an underlying mental illness or whether it's due to another medical condition causing um, their psychosis or their um, agitation is would provide two different treatment routes that you would go um, in treating those patients. And so I think the lack of um, knowledge sometimes that you're given in that setting, you know, someone comes in, like Lance described, they're agitated, they're yelling, they're angry. There's not a lot of time to ascertain what might be causing their agitation. And so for that reason, it's difficult to know exactly how to manage them um, perfectly. And so I think for that reason, you see a lot of different strategies in trying to calm those patients down um, so that you can then further treat them as a patient. Uh, let's see, Danny, was it you that I asked to read about the beta project and be able to talk to us about the beta project, or was that Lance? It might have been me, because I, I have a little bit of knowledge on that topic. I read that last night. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, The beta project's interesting. It's that same group you mentioned, the emergency psychiatrists, and their goal was kind of reaching what we're talking about, standardizing the uh, and creating a method to help agitated patients and preserve a uh, therapeutic relationship with those patients, which is oftentimes uh, lost when we go to restrain these patients or uh, as they're brought into custody or things like that. So much of their main goal is to make sure that we are screening for medical conditions that can cause agitation, uh, reducing the use of restraints uh, and then rapid stabilization, avoiding coercion to these patients, um, and then uh, really focusing on the disposition and aftercare with these patients, so making sure that they are um, still taken care of after the fact, and we can follow up with those patients because the, the revolving door is a, is a big deal uh, with many of these patients, especially with psychiatric conditions. It's so difficult to have randomized control trials, right. and I think the beta project or the beta group and also the Association of Emergency Physicians, um, I think in all cases what they tend to rely on is best evidence that they have available and, and expert consensus. 
Dylan, tell us a little bit about uh, the recommendations of the beta project, which I think, as I read this, probably is uh, a consensus that has been growing for a long time and, and just kind of got written down finally. This seems to be the general goals of most people that are treating agitation in the emergency room. So tell us a little bit about all of the interventions that the beta project talks about, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Uh, so the beta project, like Lance was talking about, it really tries to focus on, um, I would say, more of a patient-centered approach to treating the agitation and involving the patient in their care. Um, less coercion, less, I think, you know, the old adage of sedate and restrain, which unfortunately is still used um, quite often as kind of the default treatment for patients that are agitated in the emergency department, but more so um, involving the patient and kind of trying to come to a, uh, a reasonable treatment plan together. And so that involves um, verbal de-escalation um, techniques and trying to calm the patient, um, putting them in less stimulating settings, quiet room, a darkened room, um, things like that that can really help to calm the patient down. Avoiding the use of restraints um, when possible. And then if, you know, pharm pharmacologic treatment is necessary to help calm the patient, the goal of that treatment is not to, you know, simply sedate the patient or put the patient to sleep, but it's to calm the patient so that you're then able to have those discussions with them um, about their treatment and about their disposition and about what's going on um, and really figure out the underlying cause of their um, agitation. And so I think those are kind of the main goals of this beta project and the guidelines, their consensus statement as far as the pharmacologic treatment of uh, those guidelines is really um, using the treatment to calm the patient so then you can figure out the underlying cause and that your treatment should be geared towards that underlying cause. Um, there isn't just one medication you throw at everything, but you should try to ascertain what's causing their altered mental status and their agitation, their confusion, and gear your treatment towards that cause. One treatment uh, or one intervention you didn't mention in addition to the pharmacological interventions and the verbal de-escalation interventions that is mentioned is the use of restraints. Now, right. to me, this the issue of restraint and seclusion is challenging. On one hand, I, I think the beta group and even authors that have followed up commenting on beta group guidelines say things along the lines of, restraints should never happen. And you're like, but wait a minute, I, I, you know, safety has to be, you know, you have to keep your staff safe too. And so there's this true tension between that decision of how do you keep people safe and how do you avoid seclusion and restraint and treat people at the least restrictive level possible. And those are values that compete very directly sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that maybe you and I talked about, but I didn't see a lot of information about, and, and this might be something that, that is a, a later podcast, mm -hmm. is the idea that some of the beta proposals and some of the working implementations of those that we saw was simply recognition of agitation as early as possible mm -hmm. so that the interventions can be more effective. I, I think one of the articles we talked about said, hey, a turkey sandwich is a de-escalation right. uh, mechanism in some cases. And, and the sooner you recognize that somebody has growing anxiety or frustration or some other problem, and the sooner you can intervene, the more likely it seems to be that you can avoid that use of, of restraints. Now, one of the other authors that we uh, read, I think, made the comment that once somebody comes in um, 
with a uh, like a mask to prevent spitting is actively trying to hit everybody and the police are carrying them in against their will and they're actively fighting the sun has set on verbal de-escalation mm -hmm. i think was the comment and so i mean and even though we're making these comments about we do everything we can to avoid um, seclusion and restraint. We also need to do everything we can to keep people safe. And, and again, just be aware that, that that's one of the reasons why physicians are you know, expected to understand the best they can how to make decisions in that setting. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great point. I think it's important to, to remember that there are levels of agitation and there's various scales out there that you can use to try to gauge one's level of agitation. Um, but I think as Dr. Roundy alluded to, the whole point of this beta criteria was to hopefully prevent the use of physical restraints by recognizing early um, things that you could do to avoid getting to that point. You know, I think often, at least in my experience, sure, you have the patients that come in, as discussed in this, this case that was presented by Lance, that are already kind of beyond the point of any verbal de-escalation techniques or, um, and they need to be restrained and, and given some type of ph pharmacological treatment to calm down. Um, but often patients come into the emergency department for other reasons and they their agitation grows you know especially i think there's you know still a stigma with mental illness and so those patients are often you know put into a room and kind of forgotten about um, and as that happens their agitation grows to the point where they do become violent and they do become aggressive and at that point you've kind of lost it and so i think using these beta um, protocol and recommendations can help you avoid getting to that point um, or you'll need to take more drastic measures. In terms of recognizing aggression or the risk of aggression and agitation, I thought the BARS was a reasonable uh, approach to do that. Dylan, what can you tell me about the BARS? I tried to find what I could about the BARS and I couldn't find the criteria for the BARS. And so perhaps if you found that yourself, you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I didn't find a lot either. I was hoping the, you had able, been able to find something. I did find a, a useful tool that was used in one of the studies, um, I think when they were trying to determine the prevalence of um, agitation in the emergency department, and it was STAND, mm -hmm. um, I believe it's an acronym, and I'm trying to, re to remember um, what the, the S and the T stand, it might not have been STAND. Does that sound familiar to you, STAND? It does, and <laughs> I don't remember it. <laughs> the, the gist of it was there was basically essentially five things that you can use. One of them was eye contact. Um, oh, staring, eye contact. Staring, um, eye contact. Was pacing one of them or, uh -huh. or, or something along the lines? The ambulation maybe, uh, muttering to yourself. Yes, I remember this now that you're, you're describing it. Yeah. Suffice to say, I, I I think this might be something we come to later mm -hmm. um, because I think both of us were hoping that we could each find more about this uh, right. test. But I think we might have run, th this would be a peripheral focus. I think the, mm -hmm. the key takeaway here would be when you're using a test, and I think the best example we saw of this was um, the Parkland. So, so we saw three or four different studies. One came out of uh, Yale where they had an emergency department that's, that saw about 100,000 people a year. One of them was Parkland, which saw about 250,000 people a year. And then Cook County, and I didn't see the numbers on that, but I think Cook County is probably even higher than Parkland right. in terms of number of patients that go through. And, and what they were trying to do is relate their experiences um, and, and what, what they were seeing as people walked through. And amongst all of these, the bars was mentioned, I think the stand was mentioned. And when we saw operational versions of beta, which was the Parkland experience, which I think we'll get to later, mm -hmm. they were using these these screeners. 
And it's hard for me to not wonder if the reason they were having success was not because they used a screener, not because they had an algorithm for which medication when, but more along the lines of, oh, you know, this is somebody that could get agitated, we're gonna intervene now. Right. Yeah. And I think that's probably the, the, the best reason to have something like the bars as part of an order set. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Let's talk about specific treatment uh, recommendations. Now, the beta project first came out in 2012, mm -hmm. uh, or 2011, I think, and uh, there are a couple of errors in it that I think I see, and there are things that seem to have changed from the time that the beta project started and the Parkland experience where they implemented the beta project for the safety of their residents. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, though, I think the format is still pretty good, and the types of medications that they mentioned include first-generation antipsychotics, second-generation antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. Correct. Since that time, Parkland has added ketamine as an mm -hmm. option. Talk to me about uh, the pros and cons of first-generation antipsychotics. So I think some of the pros of first-generation antipsychotics is they're typically wildly available. Um, I think Haldol is still probably the most common first-generation antipsychotic that's used in the treatment of agitation in the emergency setting. Um, Droperidol is also recently seems to be making a comeback as well. Um, they have a, a fairly quick onset, especially Joperidol, um, can have effects fairly quickly. If you have someone who's severely agitated and you need to calm them down quickly, um, it can be a good option. Um, they can be used in combination with benzos, um, which can be helpful as well. Um, some of the cons would be some of the side effects that you see with first-generation antipsychotics, some of the extra pyramidal symptoms, um, uh, the dystonias and the laryngospasm, and, um, the prolongation of QT as well um, is seen often with those first-generation antipsychotics. And so those, those are some of the downsides that can come with the first-generation antipsychotics. But overall, they're still fairly well-tolerated um, and widely used throughout emergency departments. So I just want to reiterate that those are actually some pretty high-yield things that will show up on yeah. shelf exam. Akathisia, laryngospas laryngospasm, uh, dystonia. And how would you treat uh, in terms of shelf uh, questions, how do you treat akathisia? I believe Benadryl is a common treatment for some of these side effects as well as things like benztropine um, are the two that are coming to mind. And with that, you'll often see given in the emergency department, um, Benadryl in combination with um, Haldol or Haloperidol in order to try to hopefully combat some of those Side effects. Side effects. It turns out that usually the shelf answer is uh, either benztropine or diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. Uh, the data is probably better for the use of beta blockers for treatment of, of, of uh, akathisia, mm -hmm. and yet that's not really as practical in the emergency room setting. I think the other point that they made in the article was avoid IV use of Haldol. Mm -hmm. And they spent, it's, it's interesting, this droperidol issue keeps coming up, right? I think you and I talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Cam and I, was it Cam? It was Jake. Jake. Mm -hmm. Jake and I did a, a podcast on this, and there's just overwhelming data that maybe the FDA made a bad decision, and or, or maybe made a, a hasty decision, I shouldn't say a bad decision, a hasty decision on a couple yeah. of case reports at super high doses, and that um, everybody that we read said essentially, gosh, we really like this, we use it a lot, but just be aware it's not FDA approved for this, mm -hmm. and so be careful. 
Yeah. But boy, we sure like it a lot. And gosh, the data seems to support its use, and it seems to be a better treatment even than Haldol, which has yeah. been around forever. Yeah, it does seem to be growing in popularity. And I think it's it's important to be aware of those side effects and the potential adverse things that could come with using um, Joperidol. But all in all, it seems to be a safe, effective choice for, for treatment of agitation. So. Dosing seems to matter a lot in that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so not mentioned, but also uh, potentially used in this setting would be something like prolixin, which has an IM uh, option. What they did say to avoid was the highly cholinergic IM options that are available from the first generation low potency antipsychotics. And those are really just not available. You would never mm -hmm. see those in any sort of setting. Yeah. Uh, next option, I think, is uh, benzodiazepines, or second generation antipsychotics. What did you read about second generation antipsychotics? So second generation, according to the beta um, criteria or the beta guidelines, it seems to me like they're really pushing for the use of second generation antipsychotics almost as a first line um, in patients with psychosis. Um, I think the reason for that is because they tend to be more favorable in terms of their side effect profile um, than the first generation antipsychotics. Um, and they also come in, in oral forms which can be useful, like we talked about earlier, if you can get to a patient before they get to the point where they're too um, agitated and too violent to really have a discussion with you, but if you can get to the point where early on you're discussing possible oral treatments and they're willing to take that um, oral risperidol, um, oral olanzapine, um, ziprazidone are all options that you can use to, to treat the agitated patient in the emergency department. And then of those three medications, olanzapine and ziprazidone come in an IM injection as well. So they can be used for more severe, severely agitated patients as well. So I, I want to point out a couple of things that I came across. One was that they listed in the beta, uh, in the original beta papers, the use of aripiprazole as a long act or as a short acting option that's available. That isn't available to us anymore. No. It has disappeared, and it's it's uh, quite unfortunate because of the medications. Aripiprazole was the one that seemed to have. Uh, a youth indication where you could feel more comfortable that the studies had been done with younger populations, so it was mm -hmm. a little bit easier to use. The other thing that I saw show up a couple of times, and I'm, I'm kind of baffled by this, I saw IM Risperidone show up as an option in I a couple of well. papers, but I think that's an, an error. I think that's, uh, I can't find any examples of IM short-acting uh, Risperidone anywhere, and so if anybody is aware of that option, let me know. There is no elixir that you can give orally. Uh, you can give a dissolving sublingual tablet. There are a couple of options along those lines. Yeah. Remember, those still have to get to the gut. There's still a delay. Just because somebody has it dissolving doesn't mean it's a fast-acting molecule. Um, there has also been some use of uh, acenapine as a sublingual agent mm -hmm. um, that has uh, more it's more quickly absorbed through the oral mucosa and goes to the brain. But I'm not sure that I found data on the use of that in treatment of agitation in emergency rooms. Yeah. Uh, I heard you say, uh-huh, Danny, did you, did you run across something about uh, sublingual um, acenapine in treatment of agitation in collaborative patients in the emergency room? Uh, I felt like I had read somewhere, like you had mentioned, just with uh, younger patient populations that having some utility. Oh, the, uh, aripiprazole. You might be mixing yeah, aripiprazole up with acenapine. Okay. I might have been a little late on my, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but there's not a lot of data out there on that, and I think 
because, and, and I'm going to go back to something that I think you alluded to earlier, because Haldol has been around for so very long and we have so much experience with it and we are very unable to do informed consent and enroll people in mm -hmm. studies that are, you know, breaking beds and breaking cuffs, that, that makes it more challenging, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of great research you know, behind a lot of no, no real double-blinded studies or, or great research or unbiased reviews that point to one medication being better than another. Um, I think what the beta criteria is really trying to get to is that regardless of which agent you're using, it's the class of agents that really matters and you should be directing that class of agent towards their underlying condition. And um, whether you're going to use a benzo, first generation or second generation antipsychotic, you know, those have different one is better for one type of situation than another. Um, and then within that class, whether you use, you're going to use Cyprexa or Geodon, um, it really doesn't matter. Both will be effective in, in treating that patient. So a lot of physicians will just use what they're comfortable with, um, which I think is why you see HALD also widely used because it's been around for the longest um, and physicians are comfortable using it. They're comfortable with its side effect profile um, and generally know what to expect when they're going to give that to a patient. Whereas some of these newer second generation um, fast acting injections, maybe they're not as comfortable with. Uh, benzodiazepines, I think Ativan is, and uh, Midazolam are the mm -hmm. two that are used in that right. setting. Uh, yeah. I think that the last uh, medication on the list, which is not in the original beta, uh, is ketamine. Mm -hmm. Ketamine is a medication that emergency room physicians have a lot of famili familiarity with. Right. It's not clear to me based on just looking at like the Parkland uh, protocols and order sets that ketamine is an easy medication to use for the treatment of agitation. Mm -hmm. Walk me through uh, ketamine, what you found, what, what uh, your impressions were from the literature. Yeah, so my impression, I mean ketamine, as you said, it's something that's very familiar to an emergency, emergency medicine physician. It's often used for procedural sedation in the emergency department, so I think the physicians are fairly comfortable with it. And so I think it's growing in popularity in the treatment of you know, a severely agitated patient, mainly because of its, its quick onset. Um, it's something that within minutes of, of giving ketamine, you know, you'll have a, a much calmer and sedated patient. The downside of that, though, is that there seems to be much more complications with the use of ketamine. Um, the intubation rate is quite a bit higher with ketamine than with other agents used um, to calm a patient, um, as well as some other, um, there's other less desirable side effects like <clears throat> um, an emergence reaction, which is when, you know, coming off the medication, a patient might have hallucinations or, or other undesirable effects from, from the, the medication as well. This seems to be a problem that would be additive with our right. with our patients that are experiencing psychotic yeah. symptoms. Yeah. And, and I was also one, I, I personally haven't seen ketamine used to treat agitation in the emergency department. And it seems like from the literature I was reading, most of the studies are done in regards to pre-hospital medicine. And so I think it's something that's more common for EMS yeah. or yeah. perhaps police officers to be giving out in the field because they are restricted in the types of medications they can use. I don't think they're allowed to administer benzos um, on their own. And so I think ketamine is a good option for them they just have to be aware of those potential you know, sedating effects where they're gonna need, require intubation or other interventions as well. One of my nurses, Shannon, uh, has been tracking the use of ketamine in EMS services in one of the Salt Lake County areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and I continue a dialogue about it and I think that might be one of those conversations that might lead to a podcast at some point mm -hmm. as well. Lance, you had something you wanted to add to that. Yes, sir. Um, 
just in a quick Google search, I did find that UCSF Fresno did do a recent study on using ketamine as first line therapy in severely agitated patients. Um, it, it seems like the, uh, the summary here in conclusion uh, is that it, it can be used as a reliable first line agent from what I'm reading here. I would have to dissect this study a little bit more. Maybe we can. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw that study as well. And I think the, the basic gist of it, yes, it's effective in, in sedating the patient and decreasing their agitation, but it also has its, its downsides with increased side effects, increased intubation rate. Um, and so the, you know, there's a trade-off there, but I think one of the main benefits is the quick onset. Um, and so, you know, especially if you have a patient, if someone who's severely agitated and aggressive, violent, and let's say you even have to put them in physical restraints, you know, the longer they're in those restraints thrashing about, the more harm they could potentially do to themselves. And so, you know, having an agent that comes on quickly and is effective quickly can be an important thing in those situations, which I think is, is primarily where you would see something like ketamine used. Um, compared to the other agents, um, because even some of the faster acting agents like uh, Versed or Droperidol still, you know, it's anywhere from five to 15 minutes. And so that's five to 15 minutes of, of time where a patient could potentially cause further damage to themselves or, or to someone else while they're restrained. So. Right. I, I think that, it, that they suggest in the study, and I agree with this, a uh, larger scale study, they were limited by their sample size. Mm -hmm. would be very interesting to see how that works out. Did you see who the author was on that? Because I think she was also one of the authors in some of the beta articles. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's Wong. I have Jeff Riddell, Alexander Tran, Ramon Benjamin, Gregory Hendry, and Patel Armian. And I probably mispronounced uh, that. Yeah, so, so I think you see Fresno has been involved in some of the other yeah. articles that we saw. So this is a group that's actively considering it yeah. and thinking And I want to touch on something that Lance mentioned there, and Dr. Roundy mentioned it earlier as well, is you'll often see that when researching, you know, the treatment of agitation is it's, there's often a need for further studies. Um, and a big part of that is, as Dr. Roundy alluded to, is it's difficult to get informed consent in these situations. And so the ability to really have a quality study in these types of situations is, is difficult because of several of those limitations of consent and, um, I guess, even just the acuity and severity of the situation itself doesn't really lend time to, to enroll these patients in a study. Um, and so I think that will always be a problem. And so we're kind of left with, you know, trial and error and, and, and doing the best we can with the medications that we're comfortable with and managing the, the side effects and um, adverse reactions as best we can. And then case reports, I think, too, right? Or essentially yeah. case reviews, which yeah. is what I think most of these end up being. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit because we've, we've now talked about sort of the big picture, but there are a lot of uh, pearls associated with when and which medication you might use. As the, the beta criteria were very mm -hmm. specific about you need to treat the condition the best you can. You can't always know the condition, but you need to be thoughtful of the potential conditions because it makes a big difference which of these options you use. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, the review of urban admissions gives us a, a picture on some level of who is agitated. And then there was also another article, uh, this one was out of the Yale emergency room that looked at uh, the diagnosis, or, or uh, this was hard for me to understand, either the chief complaints or what they determined was the, the problem. Um, 
when patients were admitted, and I was surprised at the breakdown of mm -hmm. what seemed to be driving the agitation. So anybody that has comments on what causes agitation, let's, let's go there next. And then once we identify an area where there is a cause of agitation, let's talk about the, the pharmacological treatment of that agitation. How does that sound? So what causes emergent serum agitation? Let's start there. So there's several things that can lead to someone becoming agitated. One, you know, I think the thing that comes to people's minds first and foremost would be the exacerbation of a psychiatric illness or disease. Um, but other things can do it as well. Uh, you know, intoxication with various substances, alcohol or other illicit drugs. Um, you can have altered mental status caused by shock or, or delirium due to various metabolic derangements, trauma. Um, there's really quite a, an extensive list of things that can cause altered mental status and, and cause someone to, to become agitated um, and aggressive towards towards hospital staff. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind and not just chalk it up to um, you know a psychotic episode or, or a manic episode due to someone's psychiatric illness, but that there's a lot of things that could be causing this. And a lot of them are very serious and potentially fatal for the patient if not addressed somewhat quickly. Did you find anything that broke down numbers of uh, uh problems that led to agitation, anything. I, I found some, but like I said, they're kind of difficult for me to interpret. Yeah, um, the the study out of um, Hennepin County Medical Center, which talks kind of about the prevalence um, and the characteristics of agitation in the emergency department, breaks down the numbers a little bit. Um, as far as prevalence, they talk about roughly 2.6% of the patients that they see in their emergency department are agitated in, in one way or another. Um, roughly, 84% of them will require physical restraint and 72% of them required some type of pharmacologic treatment as well in order to help calm their agitation. Um, and then it gets into a little bit about, um, they don't go as far as to every possible cause, but they do separate delirium as a cause versus you know some type of intoxication or exacerbation of, of a medical or a psychiatric illness. And they, they said that um, roughly 26% of the patients presented with delirium symptoms. Um, and so leading to the, the idea that delirium was the cause or some type of metabolic or trauma related issue was the cause of their aggression and their altered mental status rather than an exacerbation of a, a previous illness or an acute into intoxication of some type. So that's, that's similar to uh, the numbers that the Yale group had. This was the group led by Wong. They talked about about 10% had a delirium or altered mental status, 10% had a trauma of some sort, about 10% had some other easily defined uh, medical problem, some mm -hmm. sort of metabolic disturbance primarily. Um, and then they said that the chief complaint for about 20% of the people coming in was a psych issue. And I would have thought that that number would have been higher. And I'm not sure I'm reading the article correctly, but it looks like once they do an evaluation, pure psych drops down to about uh, 12, 13%. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that alcohol and drugs as a cause of agitation in an emergency room became or was initially uh, a chief complaint about 38% and moved to almost 50%. And then multiple etiologies uh, somewhere around 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they, when they start looking through everything they do the work up, they also find that there's no impairment in about uh, 10 to 12% of the people. And, and that kind of left me scratching my head. Did the Hennepin uh, County article address uh, violence without an antecedent medical or psychiatric condition? Not that I can recall. Um, I don't remember reading anything about that. Um, 
So yeah, I'm going to say they did not address it. And did they also find that alcohol and drugs were the predominant uh, or the most likely explanation for agitation? Yeah. All right, so let's break that down just a little bit. If you have somebody that comes in and on uh, taking a sympathomimetic, and, and I think we've talked about CAT in the past, we've talked about uh, a number of molecules that uh, have evolved out of that. We've talked about amphetamines. We, I think we've talked about cocaine. I think we've talked about PCP, uh, PCP a lot of different things along those lines. Mm -hmm. And agitation is not uncommon in that setting. What is the treatment for somebody that is agitated from a sympathomimetic? I like this. Dylan's looking at the third year students. Uh, he knows the answer. <laughs> um, I do believe that your, that your goal is to, uh, you know, suppress the sympathetic nervous system and ca basically calm the patient down. And uh, I'm going to throw a wild guess just because I am a third year and this is a safe space. <laughs> um, we hope. I, I would imagine do, slowing the heart rate with something like a beta blocker, um, avoiding a beta blockade uh, and uh, alpha, pure alpha agonism would also be something to consider. So, Okay, so um, I, I'm, so I'm going to back you up just a little bit. Which, when we talked about the treatment choices for acute agitation, did we talk about beta blockers? We sure did not. Which ones did we talk about? Because that's Benzos, your Benzos, we talked about. There you go. Yeah. Benzodiazepines seem to be the first choice for patients okay. that are agitated with sympathomimetics. Why is it important to distinguish the difference between sympathomimetic intoxication and alcohol or benzodiazepine intoxication? Um, I, I would imagine that with alcohol intoxication and benzodiazepine intoxication, there's a risk of CNS depression. We, we're worried about uh, our intervention leading to the patient decompensating. And which of the uh, choices that we talked about is the one that's most risky for CNS de uh, uh, depression? Especially if you're using uh, one of the choices we talked about and the person is drinking alcohol. That'd be benzodiazepines. Yeah, benzos would be bad. So if you have somebody that's intoxicated with sympathomimetics, benzos are the right choice. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody that's intoxicated and agitated with alcohol, benzos are the wrong choice. Yeah. I'll mm -hmm. also mention that, um, particularly I guess with methamphetamine, it mentions that with methamphetamine, it's not uncommon to have an element of psychosis to it. And so in addition to the benzos, you could also um, give a second generation antipsychotic um, to help with in those situations. Dylan, can I tell you how much I love it when students uh, say something the moment before I'm about to say it? <laughs> uh, that was very well done because that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, so what about somebody that has uh, schizophrenia and has an ex exacerbation of psychosis? Which of the options would you use? I think an antipsychotic would be the ideal choice. Um, I think the um, beta criteria recommends using a second generation antipsychotic first. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think you would be wrong in going with the first generation antipsychotic. I think both would be effective, um, but I think they recommend the second generation just because of the more favorable side effects uh, profile. They tend to uh, suggest, they didn't seem to be as on board with a benzodiazepine in that case. Mm -hmm. Like that, that wasn't like, they said, oh yeah, benzodiazepine and a, and a first generation antipsychotic yeah. is a great choice. They were like, first generation antipsychotic is a great choice. And it seems like a lot of times we need to add a benzodiazepine. Yeah. It's kind of the way I read that. Yeah. And that seems to make a lot of sense to me. There is one caveat that they did point out and which we have talked about before where you wouldn't use an antipsychotic 
an I am antipsychotic with an I am uh, and, uh, benzodiazepine, and which is that? That would be Zyprexa and Ativan. Also known as Olanzapine and? Uh, Lorazepam. Razpam and, and Olanzapine. Yep, I try to use both because a lot of times our students are more familiar with the generic names than the mm -hmm. brand names. Very good. So those are some of the really important pearls. Let's talk a little bit about, um, j just very briefly, one other thing to remember is that a lot of patients that will come in incredibly agitated with that sympathomimetic uh, surge going, and they will come in in restraints, that seems to be one of the common settings for death and restraint, which is a sentinel event in the, by the Joint Commission and CMS standards, right? Mm -hmm. So so being aware that somebody that's very agitated and appears to be uh, intoxicated with a sympathomimetic, that's a, a great time to be making sure that you're doing the appropriately indicated uh, evaluation and try to avoid having somebody die from um, some sort of cardiovascular event. Right. Let's talk about uh, Parkland a little bit. Okay. Um, Dylan, you and I spoke about this earlier. Yeah. I think we were impressed with what they did and still had a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the Parkland study, or the Parkland report. It seems like it was more of a report than a study. Yeah, I think I want to say, let's see, they, they called it a... Um, um, Quality improvement yeah, intervention or something? Improve, they essentially wanted to improve the management of their acutely agitated patients and basing it off of implementing the, the project beta in their emergency department. Um, and so this is a, a recent uh, review done in 2020. Uh, I want to say it was in April of 2020 is when um, this was published. And what they did essentially is they had a significant problem with violence, um, particularly amongst their residents and their, their physicians being essentially assaulted in their emergency department by um, agitated and violent behaviors um, exhibited by patients. Um, I believe that they had mentioned, and it, it's unclear the timeline, they didn't give a great timeline as far as how this yeah, occurred, they, but... They had patient, they had, they had residents before and yeah. residents after the implementation, and I think they said, what, 30 or 40 percent of the residents had been assaulted before the implementation? This is 60. 60 percent? Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I can't remember all those numbers. Yeah, so and it was then, about 60 before, and then they implemented this, and it went down to, uh, I want to say, less than 10% of their residents had been assaulted within an 18-month period after implementing this criteria. The, the challenge I had was I didn't know if um, that was 60% per year or 60% over yeah. the lifetime of the residency. I didn't know if most of the residents spend a year in that emergency department, so it was hard for us to know how effective this intervention was. Right. Um, I think the interesting part about this article is that they essentially followed the beta project recommendations in terms of medications. Mm -hmm. So so everything we talked about already was something that was available. They had uh, preset orders that they could simply you know check the box, and those pharmacological interventions went into place, right? right. But I think the thing that's, that was impressive to me was that, uh, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of more podcasts, uh, the BETA uh, project has verbal de-escalation as a strategy, mm -hmm. right, rather than just pharmacological management. They mentioned the use of restraints as, as an option, and so that was also involved in their process. Um, but they, they did things beyond 
the beta recommendations as well. And right. then I think we're left wondering what of all these implementations seem to make the biggest difference. Do you want to speak a little bit about uh, Parkland and what they had set up to try and make the place safer? Yeah. So as Dr. Roundy alluded to, in addition to the beta, implementing this beta criteria into their order set for an acutely agitated patient, they also seem to put in several measures specifically geared towards reducing violence um, in their emergency department in their hospital, um, beginning with placing zero tolerance for violence policies, signs kind of throughout their emergency department in the waiting room. Um, all of their nurses and staff received training um, in de-escalation and in self-defense. Um, they have their own police force um, with officers positioned at the entrances of all their uh, all the entrances to the emergency department. Um, they installed cameras located throughout the emergency department. Um, their nurses, and this is where that stamp criteria that I talked about earlier came into play, their nurses um, were trained in, in triage while they were screening patients to look for um, signs of violence or agitation. And that's where the stamp, which was staring and eye contact, tone and volume of voice, anxiety, mumbling and pacing, those are all signs that you could potentially have a, an agitated and violent patient on your hands. Um, any patient who was a danger to themselves or was appeared violent was placed in a room um, where all the objects and um, anything that they could potentially use to hurt themselves or others was removed and they were placed in a hospital gown um, so that you knew exactly what was on their person. Um, they developed a, a violence response team that was called for any type of violent or um, agitated behavior in the emergency department. And then they had a, a program, um, they called it their SPARKS program, which is essentially um, a program put in place to provide support for staff and faculty that was um, either a, a victim of violence or um, affected in some way by, by a violent act in the university department. I think they had like a specific group that responded to in certain settings. Mm -hmm. It was almost like they had, they had a code for aggression. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know if I read this correctly. Did the patients that were at, identified to be at risk for aggression, did they also have a different colored gown? It mentions a green gown. I don't know if it was a different color, but it did say they were put in a green hospital gown. Yeah, I didn't understand why they, the color was important, but they, yeah. they seemed to point that out. And I didn't know if that meant something or if you'd found something that, that yeah, made more it, sense. Yeah, it could be because it was, it could have been a different color because it does say it was, they were put in that gown so they could be easily identified. And so it's likely, it's reasonable to assume that it was a different color than the other hospital gowns that were given to patients. One of the other things I really liked about this study is it, it's hard to describe um, what it means to be agitated. For me, I, I feel like I feel like I have a lot of weakness in figuring out how to describe a word. Anyway, that's yeah. that's not that's not necessarily my strength. But I liked the chart that they had in this article, which uh, described aggression or agitation in increasing severity where it starts off with signs of overt physical and verbal activity and you can redirect the person that is mild agitation right mm -hmm. so somebody's walking around somebody's pacing somebody seems a little frustrated hey you know what's going on can i help you with something can i have you come back to your room so that you know people in the hospital uh, have their privacy Oh yeah, yeah. Let me come back. Right, mild agitation. We're, they still immediately responded to that. Even that level of agitation, they were trying to offer or, oral medications. Right? right. Largely, we've talked about IM medications in the treatment of agitation, but this is the place where they would immediately try and get oral agit uh, oral medications in for agitation. And again, 
it's somewhat dependent on the uh, condition. If it's agitation from intoxication, it wouldn't be a benzodiazepine that would be given orally. It would be mm -hmm. probably risperidone or Zyprexa. That seemed to be the oral medications that were most often uh, referred to, as I recall. Right. Uh, and then it moved up a little bit. If somebody's physically or verbally threatening, um, difficult to redirect, but not violent, you know, that starts to get kind of scary, and that's moderate agitation. And that one is kind of between you know, uh, mild agitation and severe agitation. And it's kind of possible that you may need, that you may be able to get this patient to cooperate with an oral medication, or you may end up needing an IM medication mm -hmm. and ultimately restraints. It's difficult to know at that point. This seems to be maybe the area that's most difficult to judge, right? That, right. that moderate agitation. And then, of course, uh, as you move in, in severity, this is somebody that's currently violent or aggressive, is attacking objects or people, and they are going to almost consistently require verbal de-escalation, uh, IM medications, and restraint. But the other thing that they mention in this is that this is almost always going to require an evaluation to a more complicated workup mm -hmm. than your... Uh, uh, tests as diagnostic tests as indicated, which are the other two um, mm -hmm. levels of agitation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with uh, with that. And I think one thing that I one thing that I really liked with the, what Parkland did is, I think they they made their approach to treatment of agitation in the emergency department a much more active. They played a much more active role in the treatment. I think one of the problems that we see and why violence perhaps is such an issue in, in emergency departments is because I think currently it's it's more of a reactive uh, treatment um, to agitation rather than an active treatment where we're trying to prevent um, and, and um, it from getting to the point where things are violent and people are getting hurt. And um, so I think Parkland, by putting all these measures in place and even like you said, with someone with mild agitation, they're immediately on board trying to get them with oral medications, verbal de-escalation de techniques. And so while, you know, hospitals throughout the country, every hospital is different and, and some hospitals might see more patients that fall into these categories than others and, and might have more resources, you know, to dedicate a, a police force essentially to their emergency department. But I think the important thing is that regardless of, of what you're able to do based on the resources that you have or the prevalence in, in your given area is that I think hospitals need to start taking a more active approach to the treatment of of agitation um, in the emergency department setting and putting in, um, trying to implement this, this beta criteria that, that Parkland did and putting in whatever measures they feel appropriate so that it's more of a standardized approach to treating someone who may potentially be agitated or violent they come across in their emergency department rather than just reacting to someone who's all of a sudden, you know, throwing chairs and, and, and throwing punches at people. Um, and I think you'd see a lot less violence um, in emergency departments throughout the country. It's interesting because uh, the Joint Commission and CMS actually require that kind of approach that you're talking about, but I don't know that that means that everybody has done it the way that Parkland seems to have done this, right? right. And not, not again, like you said, not everybody has that same uh, set of resources. Not everybody has metal detectors in a police force, uh, and, and of course, this is uh, a, a, this Cook County, Hennepin County. Um, I think Harbor, Fresno, and the Yale sites are all. I'll have significant inner city populations mm -hmm. or uh, disadvantaged populations that that um, are different than maybe the ER that you might find in Provo, Utah, yeah. right? So, so different populations, different different uh, percentages of illnesses and those kinds of things. Um, one other thing that I, I think is is very important is 
and you and I talked about this a little bit. We talked about order sets, right? Mm -hmm. And and you said uh, your experience is there's almost always an order set for chest pain, right? Acute MI, there's an order set. And I think I asked something along the lines of what about uh, stroke order sets where you can immediately get the CT scans, mm -hmm. see if somebody's bleeding or not, and then get uh, TPA in them. Uh, TPA? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and and then we talked about other order sets, and there's not necessarily a lot of order sets beyond that, right? Because it gets mm -hmm. hard to keep track of all the order sets. But it seems like this might be one of those areas where an order set makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and an approach to the problem, even though it's not the medical problem itself, the approach to this symptom uh, is pretty important. So yeah, I, I, I agree. Like a lot. Um, makes me glad that I don't always work in an emergency room because they also make the case that the emergency rooms are much more dangerous than the acute psychiatric units. Uh, because you see people that haven't been tr had any treatment yet, and the agitation is full on at that time quite yeah. often. So thank you for working in the emergency room in the near future. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what what have I not asked you about? I think that's that's really all we wanted to discuss for today. Like you'd mentioned, we're hoping to kind of turn this into a little mini series where perhaps we talk more about um, you know verbal de-escalation techniques in the agitated patient. Um, evaluation of an agitated patient in the emergency department and maybe even get into disposition and, and um, you know after hospital care of, of the agitated patient and where they go from there and, and maybe some of the problems that exist in kind of the healthcare um, setting as far as disboing you know patients that are um, agitated or have perhaps some underlying psychiatric illness and, and where we can go from there. Dylan I think you did a really great job with this so uh, before we stop uh, Danny any pearls that you picked up from this? A couple things that I, I was just thinking as we were here uh, early on, Dylan had mentioned that uh, was it 60 to 80 percent of mm -hmm. individuals who yeah. work in uh, an emergency emergency department setting have been involved or have had some sort of altercation that's injured them in some way. And I think that I had also read that two thirds of that number was the injury occurred in the process of putting someone in restraints. Restraints are very yeah. difficult. Yeah, I, we didn't. I, I, I wish that we had been able to pull restraints more into this, but it just didn't fit really well. Um, but there's a lot of data about the danger of putting people into restraints, and we've seen that here quite a few times. We've seen injuries in our staff when that happens, and any time we can avoid that, we try to. Right, and I think that that's what a lot of this beta project was doing was trying to avoid that, so that a proper implementation of Things like this avoid a lot of those injuries that could come about if there's an earlier detection and even the process of having thinking about these sort of things. As you understand, um, Dr. Roundy had mentioned that there's a kind of a difficult decision point between like moderate and severe levels of agitation. And even at that same point when you're the physician in the room and you're interviewing the patient and you're assessing their level of agitation, are you standing in front of the door, which might give the patient a sense of feeling trapped? Or do you think that they're, uh, but you don't want them to run out? Or do you help make them feel a little bit safer by sitting down, seeing that they have a straight access to a, a getaway, and just being conscious of these sort of things? And things like the beta project, at the very least, make you think about these sort of things. Yeah, again, I'm not sure the data on standing in front of the door or not standing <laughs> on the front of the door. I'm not sure the data on turkey sandwich, not turkey sandwich. Um, but, I, but I think 
identifying aggression and being thoughtful about the things that you might be doing. You know, because I had this conversation with one of my uh, other students once, and I think it's a fascinating conversation. I, I think this student worked sort of from the approach that um, people will come to me and I'll give them what they need and they can either choose to you know, participate or not participate. And, and that's the patient's right, so to speak. And, and it's an interesting, interesting idea because I, I think it comes from sort of a libertarian mindset that, that, that this uh, medical student had. And I said, well, what, what if you, know, you really want those patients to come back? I mean, do you want them to get well and see that you've been effective? Well, yeah, okay, so, so what do you do to become more effective so that you're you know, a successful physician that has a lot of people coming back to you, successful in terms of having patients who want to continue to access your services? So now what is your role? How, how do you become involved at that point? And I think as a successful emergency room physician, one of the things that would indicate success is the number of staff that, that you know, you, are injured under your watch. I mean, some I think will be, but if you are tracking those things and, and keeping uh, attendance to those and making decisions that you don't have to make, but choose to make for everybody's safety, mm -hmm. right? That it's not necessarily critical for the patient's care, but might be something that has a better outcome. Those kinds of decisions have, I think, pretty significant implications for the people that work around us and for the patients over the long run. And, and so I think there is medical care that is uh, technically perfect, right? In other words, this person has blood pressure 147 over 92, and a beta blocker is the first step in this setting because they are you know, X, Y, and Z and don't have asthma and whatever else, right? And so I've technically given them the right medication. But then there's also, I think, um, the art of medicine, which is helping patients to understand the value of that, finding the best way to deliver that care so that it's most likely to be utilized in the best way possible, right? And, and I think that you're speaking to that a great deal, and, and it's something that I think about quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. There's, well, I did the right thing, which is usually me when I haven't done all the right things I could do, right? <laughs> Good thoughts, I like those. Uh, Lance, take home. Yeah, I, I think that what we're all talking about is, is kind of a culture of safety. I mean, when I compare what the Beta Project is compared to what the Parkland study did, I think that the, the just having an order set is not enough. Uh, I think that, I mean, I've personally worked in emergency departments and I've watched uh, some amazing nurses uh, receive terrible injuries because of uh, patients that become agitated over uh, various situations. And the, the culture of safety uh, that Parkland kind of takes there, helping patients understand that that is not tolerated, helping uh, staff be a cohesive uh, and uh, uh, pipelined sort of approach to taking care of the, this type of patient uh, protects our healthcare workers. I mean, this is, when we look at the data, this is an epidemic. We've even had healthcare workers die from situations like this, and we need to be so much better at protecting ourselves and protecting our patients. Uh, we need to be able to take, uh, we need to be able to provide healthcare, and if you feel unsafe, you're, you're not going to do that very well. So I think the culture of safety is the most important thing that we can do, and in uh, a standardized way of doing that would be great. So... Yeah, I, I was really impressed with one of the articles I read that said that uh, 25%, see if I can find the note here somewhere, 25% uh, of people that were surveyed, of ER staff that were surveyed, felt safe 
sometimes rarely or never. And that's just, that's just not, that's difficult to work in those situations, right? I really like the idea of, of the you know, idea of safety. And, and it also brings up an interesting question about uh, some of the laws that have been passed to protect healthcare workers. And I have some questions in, uh, in my mind about how those might be helpful or not helpful and, and what that means. And again, outside of this topic, but uh, which is focused on the pharmacology, but a lot of fascinating stuff around this. I mean, 70% of all workplace injuries happen in healthcare. And mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that culture of safety and figuring out how to change either what we're doing or what our patients are doing or something needs, you know, we're, we're working on that. Dylan, your take home. Um, no, I think it's been a great discussion. I've enjoyed, you know, chatting with you, Dr. Roundy and Lance and Danny. And I, I look forward to, you know, our future discussion about this topic. And, and I think a lot of the things we've been talking about here towards the end, we'll get into next time when we talk specifically about verbal de-escalation techniques. But I think that's where, really where you can make up some of that ground as far as a mildly agitated patient to someone who's, you know, actively trying to hurt you comes in with those verbal de-escalation techniques. And so I think as we discuss that, you know, next week or in the week to follow, we'll hopefully get further into that. Uh, Dylan, I, th I thought this was a great podcast and I sincerely regret that we didn't get to pull off the podcast before. I'm glad That's you okay. came back for a second run and I look forward to the one next week. Um, on that note, as you all who have heard a podcast know, we have a team out uh, sign off. So on that note, guys, thank you and team out. You guys say team out. Team out. out. <laughs> <laughs>